0: It's from the book of Matthew, chapter 3, verses 11 through 17. And John said, I baptize you with water for repentance, but after me comes one who is more powerful than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor, gathering his wheat into the barn and burning up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to be baptized by John. But John tried to deter him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? Jesus replied, Let it be so now. It is proper for us to do this, to fulfill all righteousness. Then John consented. And as soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. And at that moment, heaven was opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, This is my Son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. The word of the Lord.
1: I am the king. I am the king. I am the king. Now, beyond the shock of hearing me begin a sermon like that, I want to ask you, who came to mind when you heard me make those that claim? You can drop your thoughts in the chat if you like and share with others. Maybe it was someone like Elvis or King Arthur Or maybe it was Leo in the movie Titanic when he says, I am the king of the world. Or maybe you have a little more interest in Disney Pixar and there's the king character there. Or Martin Luther King Jr. You know, when we meet someone for the first time, our brains make these quick associations and expectations based on the way the person looks or based on the way the person talks. And when used appropriately and healthily, these expectations help us communicate more effectively, and bridge the differences when we encounter someone. But when used inappropriately and unhealthily, these expectations lead to violence or racism, as we've seen over the past few months, or years actually, or at the very least, they lead to misunderstanding. In today's text for our Encounters with Jesus sermon series, we're going to look at one particular encounter where people's expectations of God And of Jesus are overturned. And although we read from Matthew 3, as we heard Anne just read for us, this account is included in all four of the Gospels. And here, John the Baptist has been active in his ministry, pointing people to the attention of the one that is to come. Now, if you've ever been to a concert, John here is like the hype man or the pre show. Or if you like boxing, he's like the MC before the main event. Or if you like politics, he's the lead-up to the presidential candidate at a campaign rally. Their whole goal is to build up expectation for the headliner in the event. In this case, John the Baptist is the hype man for the coming Messiah. He's been running around the countryside, as uh, Matt read for us, also in that very wonderful children's story. He is actually the the first vegan, uh, free-range, locally-sourced, uh, a hippie. He's been running around the countryside building up expectations of what his, uh, of what his ex, based on his expectations of what a Messiah would be like. He's been like, everybody in the house say Messiah, Messiah. Yo, what's his name? Jesus Christ. So put your hands together for the baptizer of fire, the threshing floor clearer, the long-awaited, the powerful, the Lamb of God, 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 God. But something happens. When Jesus steps up onto the stage, John is expecting the spotlight to go onto Jesus when he takes the podium. And he's expecting Jesus to come up to the mic and say something presidential. It's like, for far too long, our people have been oppressed and despised, but I'm here now. God has sent me to save our people. So who's ready to go? Who's ready to show these Roman occupiers what the people of the living what the God uh, the people of the living God can do? For if God is for us, then who can be against us? But instead, what does John get? Jesus steps up to John who's holding the mic and he leans into his ear and says, "Um, will you baptize me? Think about that. John's left dumbfounded. The whole rally is for Jesus to get the attention. And John's like, me baptize you? You're the Messiah, aren't you? You should be baptizing me. So what's going on here? For John, and the, for John the Baptist and for all of us, we all come to Jesus with our expectations. But Jesus, we find, overturns many of our expectations. So my question for you as we begin is, what kind of expectations do you have for God in your life? And for the world that we live in. You know, like John the Baptist and many that we will encounter in the Gospels, people come to Jesus with expectations for what God can do for them. Uh, My life is going to get better with you, God. I'm going to be blessed. You know, God, you're going to help me be fully who I believe myself to be. For John the Baptist and for other Jews of his time, it was an expectation for what? A Messiah will be, and what the Messiah will do. We find that in verse 11 and 12. John tells his hearers, I baptize you with water for repentance, but after me comes one who is more powerful than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor, gathering his wheat into the barn and burning up the chaff with an unquenchable fire. In these first few verses John's expectations are quite clear. He promises his hearers that the coming Messiah will judge, will give life, will give God's spirit, will rescue repentant people from exile and oppression, and will judge evil. But to fulfill all these expectations, we must we find that Jesus must do it another way. He doesn't fulfill these expectations by meeting those immediately. Instead, we find that he humbly identifies with God's people. He lives the life that they should have lived. And he ultimately dies the death that they should have died. Now, some of you might be thinking, so wait, Andrew, are you saying that coming to God with expectations is wrong and that's selfish? No, that's not what I'm saying. Because it's what we all do, right? We wouldn't go to God if we didn't have a need. In fact, it's found throughout scripture. People come to God in need of healing or in need of comfort. People come to God with their longings for to be seen and to be recognized and to be affirmed. We have longings for what we consider are significant parts of our lives. We want our identities to be affirmed. We want our purposes to be affirmed. We want our relationships to be affirmed. Coming to God with expectations is not wrong. But the question is, what do we do with those expectations when God doesn't meet them the way we expect? What we see here is incredible humility characterizing this whole entire scene. Despite the immense expectations that John has built his career and his life upon, both John the Baptist and Jesus demonstrate this unexpected re- humility in relation to the significance of their roles. John's the front man, Jesus is the headliner. But John the Baptist lays down his expectations for what success he thinks looks like. He had a following. You know, people would come to the countryside to see this crazy man living in furs, eating locusts and honey. He had a sufficient enough platform to criticize the religious leaders of the time. Yet, when Jesus arrived, he defers completely to Jesus. We see Jesus also have incredible humility. He doesn't step in immediately and take the platform like I acted out earlier. But he simply asks to step into the waters of John the Baptist's baptism of repentance. But he didn't have to. Did he have to wrestle with how he looked before others? And how his own expectations for himself as the Messiah? I think so. He was human. Did he have to wrestle with temptations of fame and of power? Of course. In fact, we know that's the case because that's what happens in the very following chapter here. Jesus was fully human, experiencing all of our humanity, but he gives us a model of what a real human life looks like when it's lived fully in the power of the Spirit. There's a secret to dealing with our expectations revealed here. The secret is knowing God's purposes, And not allowing our own self-promotion and selfish interests to get in the way. Knowing God and God's character helps us reshape our expectations. And humility is this lens by which we begin to see things from God's perspective rather than our own. See, John the Baptist was expecting judgment. But what he got was life. You know, in our media-saturated world that is vying for eyes and views and clicks, we are often presented with information that is extremely polarizing when it comes to politics especially. Media outlets find that they can accomplish this goal of getting views by playing to their audience base, whether it's a conservative or a liberal-leaning base. They understand the human psychology of emotionally-driven decisions, so they play, might play on the discontent and the fears of their readers. You know, conservatives, I think, fear unnecessary government intervention and control will lead to injustice and inequality. But liberals will fear that unequal access to resources will lead to injustice and inequality. This week there was an article in the Washington Post that reported on how the city of Minneapolis has had one of the most progressive policies applied over the past 50 years. Despite increasing taxes on the wealthy, And redistributing education and housing resources to needed areas, the income and wealth inequality between whites and blacks has not decreased. In fact, it's increased in that same period. So, as a conservative, if you read that and you say, you'll judge and say, see, that's exactly why liberal policies don't work. But liberals will see that and say, see, that's exactly why we need more resources to address. Functional and practical segregation. We want someone to come in and make the right judgment to solve the problems that we see in the world. You know, John the Baptist is coming in with expectations for the Messiah to judge the empires that have wielded injustice towards God's people through the ages. The Jews have been oppressed for centuries and and thousands of years. They have no land. They have no wealth at this time. They have no leader. They don't feel seen or affirmed or recognized. And they expect the Messiah to come and change all that. In, in John's mind, this coming Messiah is one who is powerful. And this powerful leader is going to stir some, you can fill in the blanks yourself. And he literally is stirring it. And he uses this architectural imagery. John uses uh, and gives this image of all the harvested wheat that's gathered together on this thing called a threshing floor, which is this hard packed surface. And all the wheat is placed on there and they take a winnowing fork. I got a rake here, but it's a winnowing fork. Imagine, and they're stirring it around and they pick up the wheat and they lift it up. He lifts it up in the air and in the hopes that the light, uh, unusable parts of the wheat, which is called chaff, is blown away and carried by the wind. So he's stirring it and stirring it and lifting it up in the air and the good stuff is separated from the bad stuff. And you keep the good wheat and put it away for use. And this Messiah is going to come in and step in into the limelight, and God will use this Messiah to judge the world, lift up the oppressed, tear down the oppressors, rescue God's people, and start this new era of God's reign in the world. That's what they were expecting. You know, we too can find ourselves a lot like John the Baptist. I know I can for sure. When I see I find judgment rise up in my heart when I see acts of injustice. I find judgment bubble up when someone shares a social media post that I disagree with. And I want God to help make that judgment happen. But what do we do when that sense of judgment, and especially with how we view the judgment of God? You see, we often judge things based in the present, in our world, based on how we perceive God's judgment happens in the future. We can have a warped view of God and the gospel if we overemphasize God's judgment. When we overemphasize God's judgment, we find ourselves tempted to play God in this world, judging others or at least acting unmercifully towards them and dehumanize them. But we can also have a warped view of God and the gospel if we underestimate God's judgment See, when we underestimate God's judgment, we find ourselves underplaying the importance of God's holiness, underplaying the demand to repent of our sinful ways and that changed lives are possible in Christ. The life that we experience doesn't have to be the life that we experience for the rest of our lives. And this scene overturns all of our expectations of what God does for us, not only after death, but also in this present life. In verse 13, What happens when Jesus comes? He says, Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to be baptized by John. In this scene, the one who prepares the way and the Messiah himself meet for the first time. Well, not quite the first time. They met before when they were in the wombs of their moms. And John expects Jesus to step into the limelight and begin leading God's people in power and might and launch God's people into action with a rallying cry. But instead, Jesus asks John to baptize him. We find that in this action, God's judgment works just a little bit differently than we might expect. What happens after Jesus is baptized in verse 16 and 17? It says that as soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. And at that moment, heaven was opened and he saw a spirit, the spirit of God descending like a dove, alighting on him. And with a voice from heaven saying, this is my son, whom I love, with whom I am well pleased. Think back to an earlier scene in scripture. If you're familiar with it, when Israel fled from Egyptian slavery, they passed through the waters of the Red Sea. And, they, and they, when they came up out of the Red Sea, their oppressors were judged and drowned in that sea. And after passing through the waters, Israel was then given the law, And that confirmed their status as God's special people, as God's son, as God's firstborn. Here, when Jesus comes up out of the water, there is no active judgment of sin and injustice. At least that immediately takes place right at that point. After passing through the waters of baptism, rather than the law being given, we find it is God's spirit that is given to Jesus. And Jesus is declared God's son. You know, for Matthew, his gospel is written specifically to Jewish hearers. The point is not lost, I'm sure for them as they hear this, that Jesus, that Matthew is saying Jesus is the new Israel. Jesus is the new firstborn son of God who's arrived in person. And the spirit descends on him like a dove, indicating that judgment will not come like through war or through violence Or through oppression. But judgment will come through making peace. Jesus soon begins ministry in the power of God's spirit. And Jesus begins this new era in history. Where God's kingdom reign is quite different. Than what most Jews would have expected. We find here that judgment. At least our view of God's judgment itself. Is judged by God's spirit. You see, in in Jesus' baptism, judgment happens, but not the way we expect. Rather than judgment coming in like a heavy hand, judgment comes in like a gentle dove. And rather than judgment coming in like a taskmaster, forcing his servants to do things, judgment comes in the form of a loving father, affirming his son's core identity as the beloved son. And through baptism, we find that what we primarily identify with is not judgment, But life, life as God's beloved child, a child that is seen and affirmed by the living God. And it's by living fully into this identity as God's beloved children that we, as God's people, bring the greatest judgment on the world around us. This is the significance of the Christian baptism. Through Jesus, though Jesus has always been God's son, Jesus went through baptism as a public affirmation of his relationship with and his identity as God's son. For followers of Christ, passing through the waters of baptism too is a public identification of our relationship with God as God's beloved children that became a reality when we put our trust in Jesus as savior and as Jesus as the leader of our lives. See, when we pass through the waters of baptism, we are laying down all of our expectations for ourselves and all of our expectations for God of ourselves. And we choose to live into our identity as God's beloved children. When we pass through the waters of baptism, we are saying everything that I once held onto for my meaning, for my purpose, and for my identity is secondary to my identity as God's child. It means that in my baptism, I declare that there is nothing that is off limits to what God can call out in my life. That prevents me from living fully as God's beloved child. That means my career, even my career right now as a vocational minister, that's not off limits to God. My finances, my possessions, my life goals, my politics, whatever they might be at that moment. That means my sexuality, my family, my relationships, everything is secondary to living out a life fully as God's beloved child. As you can see, baptism is more than just a religious right to confirm a personal decision that you've made to trust Jesus. If you consider yourself to be a follower of Jesus, but have never taken this step of baptism, especially in light of what Jesus' own baptism signifies, I invite you to consider taking the step of baptism. And I would love to have a conversation with you about what that might mean for you. You can go to wcfchurch.org slash baptism for more information and for us to begin that conversation. I would love to hear from you if that's you. And for many of us who have already been baptized, I invite you to consider how God is inviting you to remember your baptism. Not just as an event, but that Every day when you go to bed and when you wake up, every time you step into a shower and when you step out, we can remember our baptism. Because every time that we do, God is inviting us to consider where our misplaced expectations of God have been. Uh, misplaced, Misplaced expectations of ourselves that God wants us to overturn. God is inviting us to consider what judgments we have made of others and of our world that don't arise from living as a child of God as someone who is seen and beloved as a child of God and just as we pass through the waters of baptism the old nature the old identity has died and we step into this new life that God Christ has promised to us he, Jesus comes to overcome overturn our misplaced expectations of God and Jesus comes to judge but not the the way that he judges is by giving life to all who would receive him. You know, we expect judgment, but we get life. But we also expect judgment, and we also expect no, we, we we too also expect to give judgment, but we also are invited to give life. You know, John the Baptist has been doing ministry, he's been telling, setting up for Jesus' arrival and telling people to repent. But when Jesus steps up, John may have expected Jesus to continue in the same vein. Step onto the stage, talk down to God's people. But what does Jesus do? His first act, Jesus does, is to go down, to be with God's people. And he shows the way of living into this new life as God's child. In going into the waters of baptism, Jesus signifies, identifies with the need of God's people. Jesus, Jesus identifies with humanity's need for salvation. And one commentator remarked on this movement: Jesus might well have been up there in front, standing with John, calling on sinners to repent. Instead, he was down there, with the sinners, affirming their, his solidarity with them, making himself one with them in the process of salvation that would he would do in due course accomplish. And so God invites us to the same as we follow Jesus not only in the waters of, through the waters of baptism, but also in how we engage in the world around us. You know, we are called to call out injustices in the world, but the way that we do it isn't only by judging those who are on the other side, who we think are on the wrong side of history. You know, there's only one person in the universe who can truly make that claim. Of seeing what's on the right side or the wrong side of history. And that person's name is Jesus. So we must hold our views very humbly. So when we identify problems in this world. We view them with humility and with deep love. And we plead with those who might. We might disagree with on important matters. To do so with empathy. And with a posture that's seeking to learn and to understand. Even more comforting in the scene is that Jesus is gifted with an affirmation of the Spirit. And we too are gifted with that same gift of God's Spirit to live out our baptism faithfully in the world. And this same Holy Spirit was promised to Joel and the the prophets Joel and Ezekiel. And this same Spirit was given to purify us and to change us and to help us live in obedience to God's laws. And this same Spirit gives us a new heart And with the gift of the Spirit, we find that real change is possible and that begins to bear fruit in our lives and in the world and so bring judgment. So what do you say, WCF? What do you say of of your expectations of God? Will you remember your baptism and allow God to overturn your expectations of him, your misplaced expectations of him? Will you remember your baptism, and step into this new life that God has promised to you so that you can bear God's judgment to the world, full of love, full of grace, and full of peace. May it be so, Lord, to the glory of your wonderful name.
0: Amen.